You can either work in the business or you can work on the business. They have the knowledge and skill to be successful. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow has yet to come. Dive all in on the next chapter of your life. Hey, everybody. This is Greg Alexander, your host of the ProServe podcast, brought to you by Collective 54. If you're not familiar with Collective 54, we are the first mastermind community dedicated to serving the very unique needs of a very unique audience, and that is founders and leaders of boutique professional services firms. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about an issue that plagues small services firms, and this is called client concentration risk. We've got a member with us today. His name is Michael Ivey, and Michael recently went through this issue, and he's going to share a little bit about his story with us today. So, Michael, with that, would you uh, please introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure, Greg. Excited to be here. Although in the years I've been following you in the Collective 54, I never thought the first time I'd be on your on a podcast would be talking about a negative <laughs> thing that I survived. <laughs> but I uh, was hoping it'd be a home run I hit or something. But you know, nonetheless, here we are. But uh, Michael Ivey, managing partner, founder at uh, Phytone Consulting. We're a boutique professional services firm based out of New York City with. Uh, with staff and locations across North America. Uh, we're most known for the services that we provide around data management and analytics and AI, um, mostly for financial services, I think is what we're, we're particularly famous for. And, uh, and where we really differentiate that is with our subject matter led and execution focused approach, which, you know, it's kind of code word for just not incubating out of universities and letting our clients train our team for us. But, um, but, Doing that and blending uh, across subject matter domains like risk and regulatory change, financial crimes, uh, core banking, digital transformation, um, blending that with data management and analytics capabilities as well, instead of a more siloed traditional approach. So, uh, anyway, I um, you know excited to be here today. I, I fo I'll follow your lead on things. I, I think one thing I'd be very interested to hear from you, Greg, is how you actually define concentration risk. Because, um, you know, in my my life working as a, uh, you know, very long time ago, worked as a, a credit officer at a bank and we loaned billions to large investment banks. And we used to look at various things when we would talk to these institutions about lo loaning the money. We'd look at their uh, their earnings profile. We'd look at their liquidity, their uh, asset quality on their books. Um, uh, but there was always this the hardest part of doing this was looking at sensitivity to market risk and uh, and a big component of that was concentration risk. So we'd ask them who are your top 10 clients, what are the services they consume from you, and how does that contribute to your earnings? And uh, and that would have a material impact on our, yeah. our ability yeah. and willingness to loan to them. So um, vastly different when we talk about concentration risk for boutique. So I'd love to hear your perspective. Is it, do you think of concentration risk as the top client, uh, the top five clients, the top 10 clients, uh, you know, yeah. Great question. So, and why don't we start there? So, and I'll, and I'll give you a very precise answer and then I'll tell you how it came to that answer. So our definition of client concentration risk or high client concentration risk is when 30% of your revenue, 30% or more of your revenue comes from your top five clients. And the reason why we use that as our definition is that we've been in business now for a little over four years. And during that time period, we've had 28 of our members exit their firms. And we've had 
four times as many of that try to exit their firms who were unable to. And after watching the contrast between the successful exits and the unsuccessful exits, we've settled on this definition. More than 30% of your revenue from your top five clients. And the reason why we settled on that is because the deals that didn't get done, a large reason why they didn't get done is because of that particular issue. There were other reasons for sure, such as an over-dependency on a brilliant founder and a weak management team, um, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that's really the definition. And you know where it comes up most often is during the exit, but that's not the only area. For example, in your past, you know, you you made lending decisions based on client concentration risk. And we see our boutique pro serve firms trying to borrow money all the time. And they get asked this question from their bank. And, um, you know, the answer is different from bank to bank, but that seems to be a good enough working uh, definition. You know, and the, the trouble with it, it's a catch-22 because when you're a small firm, you know, having an anchor client is a wonderful thing. You can build an entire firm off of the back of an anchor client because there's a predictable revenue stream, there's a growing revenue stream, there's a meaty client with a great project to hire into, et cetera, et cetera. But you're not careful. You wake up one day and you're really not a firm. You're a service provider with a single client. And then if that client goes away, you know, all hell breaks loose, so to speak, which takes me to really what I wanted to get to, which was, you know, you mentioned it was a negative that you survived this issue. I would tell you it's a positive because a lot of times what you dealt with puts a firm out of business. And the fact that you you survived and you're, you've restructured and you're now thriving again after dealing with that is a testament to your resiliency. So why don't we turn it over to you and just have you tell everybody the story of what happened. I think that would be really instructive. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. And, and I think that's a, a great definition to kind of characterize the scenario. But, um, you know, I, I worked at one of the largest consulting firms in the world. And, and you know, I accidentally started consulting from a very long time ago and learned what I didn't know. So wanted to go learn how the best firms are run. And, and then so when I went back on the journey to work at Boutiques again, um, we had tremendous success, but then unfortunately got acquired by the same firm I just left to <laughs> to. Um, so then I had to start over again, uh, not too long ago in 2000, at the end of 2018. So I started, you know, that's when I started finding consulting and I had to start over at ground zero website, everything. And, um, and, you know, so, um, we, we got going, we, you know, and then we continued to grow 300 plus percent per year, all the way through 2022. And, uh, and it certainly, you know, as, as we scaled to a point where we were, you know, doing, you know, over 3 million a month in revenue, it was, uh, a lot of it was driven by our top three clients, um, the vast majority of it, to be honest. And, and part of it is it's that double-edged sword that you alluded to, because um, it seems like insanity to say, sorry, client, we're doing too much good work with you at, at, at competitive margins, and, and we need to diversify. So turning, you know, turning that revenue down, um, because we recognize there's concentration risk forming in our revenue, doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. And I'll definitely say having one $20 million client is a lot easier to manage than $21 million clients. So we didn't have the infrastructure, the resources, the recruiting power to, uh, to, to do it across 20 different clients. I think, you know, looking at today, our revenue, not as low as it did drop as, as these clients, um, you know, the, uh, the clients I'm referring to being uh, largely banks. So I think 
concentration in many forms. So we had financial services at the end of 2020 was 95% of our revenue. Then within financial services, banking was over 80% of it. And by banking, I mean commercial, retail, and investment banking. And um, and then within that bucket, we had two or three clients that dominated it. So we had concentration on top of concentration, if you look at it from a layered perspective. And, and so we were certainly aware and concerned, but you know our main client, our largest client was 200 plus year old uh, organization, uh, foreign banking organization. We were the number one you know services provider in North America for them. And, uh, and so you know what are the chances they go bust on your watch? But unfortunately, you know that is uh, what we had to deal with. In fact, a broader banking crisis, the worst you know crisis since the 2008 crisis for banks and if you're watching the news this week, you'll probably see it looks like wave two of that banking crisis might be coming on us right now. But I'll, I'll tell you, uh, as I go through the story, I mean, why we are we feel like we're in a vastly different position today than we were even a year ago. Um, and and the the crisis, while it came to a head when Silicon Valley Bank went bust in March of last year, and that kind of cascaded a bunch of other dominoes, um, it really started six plus months before that. Um, you know, when everyone was batting, batting down the hatches, a lot of times the first cuts to go are strategy projects or um, or consulting, consulting and um, contingent workers. So, um, so we started feeling the pain well before the crisis came to a head. Actually, in March, that was when our revenue actually bottomed. So, when the crisis actually was peak, so peak media. That was when we had, the bottom was already in at that point for us, and we've been up every month since then. Um, so, uh, I what it, the silver lining though, um, because we were so busy servicing those largest clients, we were actually able to now pivot some of those calories towards supporting uh, other clients, adding these other client logos in other industries and other verticals within financial services. So, looking at those same concentrations today. Now financial services is down to less than 20% of our total revenue, uh, less than 80%. So more than 20% now is, is other industries, which is a big step forward in two years, I think. Um, then within banking is now only 30% of our financial services revenue. So now we have insurance and asset management and uh, other fintechs and other, you know, other category, we'll call it, making up the, the, the rest. So now as we come into a potentially round two of a banking crisis, we actually look at it like we can actually grow revenue through a crisis as opposed to having one or two major clients going down. Hmm. I'll pause there for a second. Yeah. I mean, I have great empathy for you. I mean, you're, the big client is a 200-year-old institution, and they went poof overnight. I mean, the odds of that are so small. So <laughs> it's just a... I guess a stroke of bad luck that happened to you, and I don't want—I don't want the listeners to overreact to that. I mean, that would be the very definition of a black swan event, I guess. But you've taken these steps to diversify, which is really the takeaway from today's call. You know, if you—if you were to look back, you know, with a uh, the power of retrospection, and you could wave a magic wand and you could speak to your former self, you know, when you launched the new firm in 2018, and you were growing 300% a year and you got it up to $3 million a month in revenue. I mean, things you were rocking and rolling. What would you have told yourself then to do at that moment to allow yourself to better cope with what did happen? Well, actually it's interesting. I don't know that I would change an awful lot. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think there were important lessons that we needed to learn. And, and honestly, as a risk person, I mean, we always have to have our risk hat on. So I, I kind of, we always knew those were risks. And unfortunately, it was kind of a worst case scenario with, you know, our top three clients, all, you know, two of them going to zero and, um, you know, the other one massively cutting back. So, so that, that was tough. It, I think it, it presented a challenge that really pushed us to exceed. And, and actually, I, I, it's an interesting concept that you know, we often say in the investment world that diversification is the only free lunch. Um, and that's when you're talking about long-term consistent saving and investing. But Warren Buffett like, was famously interviewed and they asked him, uh, they kind of said in a matter of fact way that you know, diversification is so critical. He said, well, yeah, for the average person, diversification is great. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you really know what you're doing and you're really in there, you should take those specific idiosyncratic risks because that's where the most asymmetric upside mm -hmm. exists. Mm -hmm. And I think we would have never, if if I if I told myself like back off on on these biggest clients and really focus on others, I'm not sure. You know, uh, I'm not sure how much how successful we would have been with a lot of other clients. Um, and like I said, you know, we were at full capacity just supporting that one $20 million client. So, um, you know, would we have been able to do what we did and build the team that we did? I guess my answer to that is always be thinking about risk mitigation. So if we know we have concentration risk, it's part of the stage of any entrepreneur's journey um, is, is at some point you probably have some level of concentration and, um, and, organically over time, we're going to continue to add new logos. Some logos are going to go up and down. And um, and the, the top five, top 10 list, you know, there'll be some names that are kind of common, that are commonplace there and others that are, you know, popping on and popping off of that list. So I think, you know, I look at it like, what are the risk mitigants? Well, there's the strategy side. So you're using EOS or OKRs and they're hyper, are they hyper-focused on incentivizing your organization to uh, be doing the sales efforts needed to have that pipeline of new logos coming for new clients. Um, the next thing, I guess, you know, diversification is easy to say, but it takes years to build diversification, yeah. at least in, you know, for us when we're working with really large, complex organizations. Um, and, you know, the the big, our saving grace as a risk mitigant was the fact that we used a lot of contractors and contingent workers so we didn't really have to do much cutting in terms of you know our full-time what we call our franchise players really almost none um in fact we grew headcount throughout this whole crisis so mm -hmm. it, it it really was an opportunity for us to invest because we had the kind of confluence of things happening in 21 and 22 where the great resignation people were asking for three four five six seven hundred thousand dollar base salaries and they were getting it in some cases and um and so you know and if you give in to that then your existing talent they you know all else equal why aren't they getting it as well so you know we we stuck to our guns we'll, we'll pay market rate for a contractor what we need to at, at that point in time but you know we didn't over hire when the euphoria was going on that put us in a position to do strategic hiring coming out of it so just one of the many i think silver linings yeah great advice you know what i would add um you know when you think about risk mitigation and having a risk mitigation plan, which is what Michael has and what he's advising to you. I don't know if enough of our listeners and members of Collective 54 have a formal risk mitigation plan. So that might be the takeaway. And when we have Michael on for his private Q&A session with the members, we'll, we'll get into details of what a risk mitigation plan looks like. But 
just to tease the audience a little bit with what we might discuss then, I always ranked when I had my boutique risk high, medium, and low. And I ranked it based on how long would it take to recover? So a very high risk was something that if it happened, it would take me a year to recover from. And therefore I prioritized those risks and I came up with contingent plans to deal with those first. Then I would say moderate risk might take me six months to recover. And then I would say at light risk might take me a quarter to recover. And I'm not suggesting that that's the way that you all govern your risk mitigation plan, but a risk mitigation plan starts with not all risks are the same and ranking them high, medium, low might be helpful, you know, to the audience. And the risk that we're talking about today is not the only risk that you have as an entrepreneur of a services company, but it is a big one. And that is client concentration risk. And as Michael shared with us today, you can't just flip the switch and diversify tomorrow. I mean, there's it takes a while to build out a portfolio of clients that are diversified and stable. So client concentration risk is in the high category because, you know, it might take you a year or so to recover from that. All right, Michael. Well, we try to keep these podcasts short, about 15 minutes in length, and we're at that window here. Um, but I do appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And I know that when we have our Q&A session with the members, we'll get into more detail about it. And there'll be lots of questions regarding this. But congratulations on your remarkable story. You know, you had a huge run up. Unfortunately, you had this black swan event that caused some pain, but you've recovered from it very nicely. It's amazing how level-headed and non-emotional you are about it. So that's great. And I'm glad to see that things are turning around for you. And I, I wish you a lot of luck going forward. Yeah, thanks a lot, Greg. And always here if anyone wants to reach out and talk more about the topic. So, All right, great. So a couple of uh, calls to action for audience members. Um, so if you're not a member of Collective 54, you want to be, go to collective54.com and fill out an application. We'll get in contact with you. If you're not quite ready to become a member yet, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter, um, which is Collective 54 Insights. You can find that on the website as well. That's where this podcast gets posted. And if you want to dive in a little bit more and uh, spend some time with it, I suggest you read my book. It's called The Boutique, How to Start, Scale, and Sell a Professional Services Firm. You can find it on Amazon, take you about a three-hour read, and our content is organized and our programming is organized as that book is. So hopefully those are helpful. And until next time, audience, I wish you the best of luck as you try to grow, scale, and sell your firms. Mm -hmm.